Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Thank you for joining us to worship and learn more about God as we all pursue Him together as a community. For more podcasts and services about past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendecatur.org. Or come connect with us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. Now, enjoy the message. get to bring our scripture this morning. We're in Luke 6, 27 to 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, What credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Well done. I'm not scared of you. I want to start my message this morning by reading an excerpt from a uh, testimony given by a woman named Emily Klotz. She gave this testimony on a TV talk show called The 700 Club. Some of you might know what The 700 Club is. On the cable or the Christian Broadcasting Network, CBN Network, back in March 2011. Uh, Please be aware that some of what comes next might be difficult for some of you to hear. Emily was out jogging one day when a man grabbed her and filled her face with pepper spray and stuffed her into the trunk of his car. This is my worst fear, she thought, and it's happening to me right now. As the car rumbled along the highway, Emily began to sing some of the old hymns that she remembered from church when she was a kid. The sound must have agitated the driver because she says that he kept turning the radio up to drown out his conviction. About an hour later, the car stops, the man opens the trunk, and Emily desperately tries to escape She was able to scratch her face, she said, but he threw me to the ground and he pinned me there. And at that point, I looked at him. I looked him in the eyes and I asked him, are you working for the devil? And he looked at me funny and said, no. And I said, well, God is with me, is the only words that she could say. Emily was then tossed back into the trunk and driven for another 45 minutes The man eventually parks his car, drags Emily out 
of the car, brings her into a house, ties her up to a steel bar in the bedroom, and he brutally uses her in a way that no human should use another person. I am a father of two daughters. And as I describe Emily's experience to you, anger wells up inside of me. If there was ever a time to find a place for violent retaliation and vengeance, this is it. Logically, emotionally, physically, I see every reason to break into that house and to beat that man into a bloody mess. Emily, however, she chose a different route. Emily had more faith in King Jesus than in human vengeance. And so when he was done using her, he shoved her back into the car and she began to sing. Again, this time she begins to sing Amazing Grace. <laughs> it's so crazy, but looking back on this story, this is the moment where she actually believes she came to true faith in Jesus Christ. After what just transpired to her, this is the moment that she surrenders to Jesus, singing Amazing Grace. She was eventually dumped out of the car, and after finding her way home, she called the police. She remembered enough details to help them find the, the rapist, and he was arrested, he was tried, and he was convicted. And then he was given a 30-year prison sentence. But no arrest, no three, not even a 300-year sentence could heal Emily's pain. She suffered seemingly incurable wounds, and yet above all, Emily wanted to follow Jesus and to live like Jesus. Emily later confessed that she felt the Lord wanting me to forgive the man who had done this to me. And she was reminded of the words that Jesus himself spoke while he was hanging on a cross, abused and bloodied. He said these words out loud, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so she followed the example of Jesus and she too spoke forgiveness out loud. She said these words, I choose to forgive this man who hurt me. And I said his name and I ask God the Father to forgive him because he doesn't know what he has done. And I ask you, God, to bring him to his knees in repentance before you. And she prayed for this man's salvation. And she asked the Lord to help relieve her of her hatred and her despair. And in that moment, she depended upon Christ rather than retaliation to be her healer. While the man was in prison, Emily's words are you working for the devil? Kept running around in his mind. And he kept remembering her singing Amazing Grace. And it gnawed at this man's broken heart. Two years into his sentence, he gave his life to Jesus. And now he witnesses to other inmates in prison. Emily recalls, and this is the testimony that she gave on the 700 Club that day. <sighs> She recalled that she jumped up and down and she was praising God in her kitchen when she heard the words. And she was so excited that my prayers had been answered. Welcome to Renaissance. What Emily was able to do and how she was able to forgive the man who abused her is a compelling story for us to hear, yes? We do not hear stories like this very often. And when we do, they break through the normalcy 
loudly and they bring conviction to us. We say things, I don't know if I could do what she did. How many of you are already thinking it? We would all agree that her actions are not the norm in our culture, and they are not oft repeated on a regular basis in our Christian experience, but they used to be. Emily quoted Jesus on the cross saying, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. This possibly speaks to the fact that, that those Roman soldiers who had no way of knowing that the man that they were killing was actually, the, was actually God's son, the second person of the Trinity in the flesh. It, it almost sounds like Jesus is saying, if they only knew who I was, then they wouldn't complete their task. They would break rank and they would release me back to my disciples. But I don't think that's what Jesus meant when he said, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I think what he was implying is that the participating in his death was in fact a sinful act and an abhorrence to God. And if only they knew God and his love for them and his ability to give them abundant life, then they would act differently. You see, death on a cross was more than just a penalty for capital punishment. For the Roman soldier, it was the necessary and grotesque torture of an enemy, a public humiliation, and a warning to any opposing combatants. Rome made crucifixion into an art form. History tell the, tells us that after one victorious Roman battle, they crucified 6,000 enemy soldiers along the road leading up to their capital city. They firmly challenged anyone who would stand in their way. And so Jesus basically told the soldiers, pounding the nails into his hands and his feet, you don't have to act like this. You don't have to do this. There is another way. Emily Klotz found that way. And so have others. In the book of Acts, we read of a man named Stephen. He was a Christian devoted to the way of Jesus. And the same religious leaders who persecuted and hounded Jesus were now hounding and persecuting Stephen. While Stephen defended his faith, their teeth gnarled in hatred until one day they picked up heavy stones and they used them to smash his body and to break his skull. Stephen was the first Christian to lose his life because of his faith in Jesus. We call him the first Christian martyr. But did you know this? Right before he died, he said some words out loud with bated breath. He petitioned God with these words saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He didn't cry to those watching this injustice to avenge him. He didn't even ask God to strike those wicked men down. He asked God to show them mercy. He sounds a lot like Emily, and he sounds an awful lot like Jesus. The Didache is one of the oldest patristic documents we have. That's a fancy sentence. <laughs> Apologies. I felt good when I wrote it, but it makes no sense to me. Um, it just means it's kind of an old book that we found by some church leaders. But it's the name that comes from the Greek word meaning teaching. It's also called the teaching of the 12 apostles. It's a first century document. And um, the author and the place of it are really unknown. The origin rather are unknown to us. But scholars all believe that it was written um, some years before the end of the first century. And it, it probably has some of the, uh, the teachings from the apostles. You know, people like Peter and James and John. And while we do not hold the Didache as an inspired document like our Bible, yes, yes, but it does give us a glimpse into what it was like to be a Christian in the first century. 
Simply stated, this document was probably used as a catechism or a teaching document for new Christians in the ways of following Jesus. In it, we read the opening words, and I quote from the Didache, there are two ways, a way of life and a way of death. And the way of life is this, you shall love your God who created you. That sounds eerily familiar to some words that Jesus said. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And all those things which you do not want done to you, you should not do to others. <laughs> this sounds so much like the sermon that Jesus gives um, in Luke chapter six that we're reading. These expressions of loving God and loving others dominated, hear me, dominated the actions of the early church. And they can be scattered throughout the writings of the early church fathers. I'll give you just a few quotes. Justin Martyr, who lived from 100 to 165 AD, said this, we who formerly hated and murdered one another, we now live together and share the same table. We pray for our enemies and we try to win those who hate us. Tertullian from 160 to 220 AD says, it is forbidden, it is forbidden to repay evil with evil. The Christian does not even hurt his enemy, Tertullian says. Athanasius of Alexandria, 293 to 373 AD, this is now the fourth century. Christians, instead of arming themselves with swords, extend their hands in prayer. Theophilus of Antioch, who died around 185 AD, said these words, say to those who hate and curse you, you are our brothers. Origin, I think this is my last one, 185 to 254 AD, it says, we have become sons of peace for the sake of Jesus, who is our leader. These quotes and hundreds more like them describe what we may call enemy love. And they seem to speak of a code of ethics, a way of loving others that is almost non-existent in, the, in our world today. Can I just see a few more head nods? I just, I need it. I mean, it's like, if you only knew how hard this is. These, um, yeah, sorry. I want you to ask yourself this question. Could you pray for someone who hurt you like Emily Klotz prayed for the man who hurt her? Can you parrot the words of Theophilus of Antioch and call those who hate and curse you a brother? Do you agree with Tertullian who says it's absolutely, absolutely forbidden to repay evil with evil, period, end of sentence? <laughs> I am not scared of you. <sighs> How many people remember high school biology? Uh, gosh, who'd, what kind of church is this? Why would you bring that up? I will say, I admit this, most of my high school memories have been sort of um, erased from my mind. They sort of faded dim. Uh, some of you probably are thinking, yeah, it's because you went to high school a long, long time ago. <laughs> and I hold all of you in a dear place in my heart for saying that, I get you. Um, but there's also this thing that I do. I have this uncanny ability to dissociate myself from places and events that I don't enjoy. I'm actually doing it right now. In fact, it's one of the perks of having a generalized anxiety disorder. We can just check out, bro. Like, I will look at you and nod at you, and I am not even listening to you. <laughs> it's a real thing. 
but I, I do have one strong memory from uh, biology class. It was during my freshman year, and we were studying the uh, human circulatory and respiratory systems, you know, the heart and the lungs and all of that. We'd been reading through our textbooks and looking at the images that they had drawn for us, and they'd color-coded the arteries red and the veins blue, and you could see which was which. But one day we come into class, and the teacher asked us not to open our textbooks, but actually to go to our assigned lab tables. And there, underneath a little white sheet, we each found our very own, wait for it, heart and lungs sitting right before us. And oh my God, are these human? Seriously, are these human? <laughs> Is that allowed in high school? It, they weren't. They were pig um, hearts and lungs. Uh, from a recently harvested pig, which I think is the nice way to say a dead pig that they killed for bacon. Mmm, <laughs> bacon. Anyways, our teacher said that these heart and lungs are about the same size and shape of human hearts and lungs, and so we used them to learn from that point forward. Without the color-coded blood vessels on the textbook page, it was much harder to differentiate between what was an artery and what was a vein. But over time, we began to get the hang of it. And it was actually kind of great. There's just something to be said about hands-on practical learning versus learning from reading in a book. Anyone agree? And here's my thesis. And I believe the Christian life is no different. I believe that we read the Bible and we learn, say amen, yes. I believe we learn about God and the history of his people and we see his acts of judgment and of grace and we read the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and we sometimes even memorize those words. Scripture memory, let's go. And that type of learning is good. It's like classroom learning. It's like textbook learning. But I want to tell you, I want to encourage you, all of us that are listening, that practical, hands-on learning is so much more beneficial this is what I call lab learning. To me, church on Sundays is like biology lab for me. It's a place where we get to interact with real humans and practice, quote unquote, practice loving each other. We get to practice grace and compassion with each other. And sometimes we even get to practice enemy love. It should come as no surprise to anyone here that, people, that, all, that many people in this church do not get along with each other. <laughs> Look down your row. We don't think that their disagreements are typically major, but they sometimes don't like each other. But there is dislike and disdain for people. I just want to, and if you don't see it in the church, can I just ask you to hang on a few months? May I remind you that the presidential election in November 2024 is not that far off? Yeah, nervous laughter, nervous laughter. <laughs> and if 2020 is any example of what we might expect next year, it just might get nuts in the church. But it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. I would argue it shouldn't. Jesus has a different way. And he speaks about it in his sermon in Luke chapter 6. So if you have a Bible with you, we can read Luke chapter 6. We'll go through those verses 27 through 36 that, that TJ had read. If you don't have a Bible, there is a hardback one underneath the seat around you, and there's, the words will be on the screens behind me, so you can just follow along there. And, you know, I prefer people to read out of a Bible, and that's totally fine if you don't bring a Bible. That's good. And I'll even give you a pass today. Maybe it's best you just focus on the words up here and just, just try to stay with us here. I think, I think the Lord, honestly, and I don't, 
I don't try to upsell anything here. I really think the Lord is saying something today. And so I, I pray that we hear it. At the beginning of his sermon, Jesus says in verse 27, these words, but I say to you who what? Hear. But I say to you who hear. This word here implies more than just listening. It more accurately means listening and obeying to what is said. There's, this, is no, this is no different than when um, parents lean down to their children just before they go into the park and to play and say things like this. I need you to hear me when I say this. We're going to be nice to all the other kids, okay? <laughs> We're going to play nice. <laughs> We're not going to be those neighbors. They want their child to be nice, yeah? So same thing. It's not just listening to what the parent says, but actually obeying. Jesus is telling his disciples that his words are not only to be learned, but hear me, they are to be lived. I, I, I say this lovingly. There is no gold star for having memorized the sermon on the plane and not lived it. There, there's no high fives like in eternity for, for just learning about it and not living these things. God desires us to be people who, who look and sound and act like his son, Jesus, yes? And so Jesus gives us a list of actions, what follows next in his sermon. And these actions are kind of like an ethics code, a code of ethics. It's, it's, they, it's what's used to define the heart, the renewed heart of a believer, Verse 27, again, he continues. If you can hear me, listen, pay attention, do what I say. He says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Verse 29, and to one who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes your cloak or your jacket, don't withhold your tunic or your shirt. Give him everything. Give to everyone who begs from you and from the, one who, from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. We could spend a whole lot of time diving into those verses. And I suspect many of us have heard many sermons about those verses. But just know this, these are things that God practically wants us to do. Verse 31 is what we call the golden rule. It sums up all of the verses before it. But we must understand that it's to be understood, uh, not to be understood rather, as a way of earning something in return. Like, hear me when I say this. We don't act this way towards others so that we get something in return. We don't treat others well, for example, giving them grace, showing them compassion and kindness when they are rude and uncomely because we hope that one day when we're having a rough go of it, probably at Walmart, just throwing that out there. <laughs> probably. That we're having a tough day at Walmart and we act like a jerk that maybe someone will give it back to us in return. So what we'll do is we'll walk around, we'll be kind and compassionate and we believe that God will then flip its script and give it back to us one day. And Jesus rebukes that thought. That is not why you do it. No, we act kind. We extend compassion and grace. We give of our resources of time and even money to others expecting, wait for it, nothing in return. Nothing in return not from the ones who received it from us, and we especially don't expect anything back from God. 
I've never been a person who believes that we can somehow manipulate God into doing something for us simply by our actions. Feel free to disagree with me. I don't care. But I've just never thought that we could take the sovereignty of God, who is his alone, and somehow manipulate him and, and, and marry, put marionette strings upon him and somehow compel him to do something for us because we acted a certain way. I don't think that's how his sovereignty works. However, before the emails start flying my way, I do believe that God does great things for us. Amen? Amen. And I do believe that he does them because he loves us. Amen? Amen? I just don't believe he does them because he owes us. This is what Jesus explains in the next part of his sermon. That he says, verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that of you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Like there is no distinction between them and us at this point. Verse 34, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, like maybe interest, a little usury, you know, I'll give you five bucks, but you gotta give me back, give me back 10, right? If you do that, he says, if you lend to those, verse 34, who, and you expect to receive something back, what credit is that to you? He says, even sinners will lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But here it is, verse 35. But he says, love your enemies and do good and wait. Lend expecting nothing in return. Do not act kind towards others. Don't show the enemy love with an expectation of a payback. Do it because it is right and righteous to do so. Then Jesus adds, verse 35. This is kind of awesome. And then your reward will be great. Reward? I'm in for reward. So there is something that we get in return. Yes, yes, there is something. Jesus says God is going to reward those who are obedient to his words. But before you think that this is somehow just a moral pact that we make with God, that we will be good people and he will bless us in return. No, just remember that Jesus says, do all of these things expecting nothing in return. But God will choose to reward anyway. So are you guys with me? Okay, I'm getting started. Here we go. So what is the reward? Are you writing these down? If you're taking notes, write this down. Seriously, pull out your phone. This is it. So what is the reward? Jesus doesn't say. We have no idea. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> I mean, it could be goldfish crackers for all we know. I have no idea. And honestly, I secretly hope it is. And not those garbage, like, graham crackered ones. I'm talking the original OG cheesy ones. Anyone? I'm going to go over here now. You guys know what I'm talking about? The snack that smiles back. Anyone? That's the reward in heaven. I'm convinced. Let's go. Oh. Jesus doesn't say what the reward is. Oh, come on, Lord. Help. He just says you'll get one. He says God rewards. He is faithful to do what he said he would do. And he adds verse 35, the end of verse 35, he says, and you will become or you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You will become like him, he says. Possibly that's the reward. 
I mean, I'll take being like Jesus over graham crackers or, you know, snacks any day. Anyone? Let us all be like Jesus. We will all be sons and daughters of God who display his character to the world around us. We will show kindness to ungrateful and evil people. Why? Because that's what God does. In fact, that's what God did for us. The Apostle Paul was once an enemy to God and God's people. He was an approving witness to Stephen's murder that we spoke about earlier. And he wrote these words of clarity in Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul writes this, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we, while we were still, what, sinners, uh, could be translated enemies to God, while we were still at enmity against God, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, that's what being a sinner is. It means you're an enemy to God. And as his enemies, God has every right to bring down judgment and holy wrath upon us. Say amen. amen. But instead, there's another way. Instead, he sends his only son, Jesus, to offer his life as a redemptive sacrifice for us so that we can become sons and daughters of the Most High. Jesus then concludes his sermon, verse 36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. God the Father is our example. He was the example to Jesus. You guys remember Jesus' words? He says something like, I only do what the Father does. And I only say the things that I hear the Father say, we're going to be like that. This is ultimately the goal that God has for us, that we would be people who see God act and see God move in the pages of Scripture and in the world around us, and we will parrot those responses to the world, that we will mimic those things. And all of a sudden, we will begin to shape the culture around us. And this world begins, begins to look like the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen? This is heavy. Yeah? You know why it's heavy? Because you don't do it. You don't. You make every... You. You people. Can I, if I may sit next to you, please, for, but for a moment. We do this. We make every excuse to repay evil for evil. He didn't even use his turn signal, Stacy. Of course I'm gonna cut him off. Okay, I don't know about you, but my wife has the role of the Holy Spirit in our marriage, anyone? And she takes every opportunity to remind me of all the things that I'm not doing right. But she doesn't understand what I know. Like that dude's been tailgating us since champagne, right? He deserves what he's about to get. We make every excuse to not do the things that God tells us to do. Russell Moore, <laughs> I don't know if you know who Russell Moore is. I ha I'm a fan of Russell Moore. Um, I, I, I don't have time to tell you how much that he's done for me as a Christian, like his writings and his teachings. He's a pastor, he's an author, he's a PhD, New Testament scholar, he's an ethicist, he's, his, his research is renowned. He's just a brilliant man. Anyways, he dropped a new book this uh, last couple weeks called Losing Our Religion, An Altar Call for Evangelical America. Now, again, if you don't know who he is, just know that he's a super dude and I really have learned a lot from him. 
But when I heard that his book was coming out, I pre-ordered it and I read it as soon as it hit my inbox on Tuesday. I do Kindle books, eBooks, anyone? All right, so I read that thing when it came in on Tuesday a couple weeks ago. And I have to say this, I have not recommended a book more than that book. Yeah, I've not recommended any other book more than that book to more people ever in my life. I get no like commission for selling his book or nothing, but hear me when I say this. If I haven't talked to you like about reading this book, it's possible we're not friends. Because I've told all the people that I like that this book is amazing. <laughs> all right, too, too far. Anyways, his book's amazing, right? So I don't want to go into the book. It's great, whatever. But while, he, while Russell Moore was promoting it, and wait for this, this is going to get real good. He was doing a lot of interviews with a bunch of these little news media outlets. You know how they do the little tour of all the media outlets promoting the book. And I ran across an interview that Russell Moore did on NPR. And some of you right now just checked out. Okay. Now you have to know that Russell Moore is a conservative Christian with two C's, capital C's, capital C conservative, capital C Christian. He just is. So the fact that he was on NPR surprised me. Okay. Anyways, during this interview on NPR, he said that in recent years, he's had multiple pastors tell him um, that their sermons are creating disagreements with, his, with their congregants in many recent years. He said that these pastors would say it sometimes become, becomes especially pronounced and the congregants get especially agitated when he quote, quotes the parts of the Bible that say that believers are to turn the other cheek and that they're supposed to love their enemies. Eventually, these pastors tell Russell Moore that they would come up to him after the service and say things like this. Where did you get those liberal talking points, pastor? <laughs> and Russell Moore continues, what was alarming to, to him was that in most of these scenarios, when the pastor would just tell the congregant that these are just the words of Jesus from his sermons in the New Testament, I'm literally just quoting the Lord Jesus Christ, that the, the response of the congregants was not an apology, like, oops, sorry, my bad. I didn't realize those are the words of Jesus. No, their response when he says that these are the words of Jesus Christ in his sermons, they say things like this. Yeah, 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 I know Jesus said those words, but I don't think that works anymore. That's weak. All right. So I think Moore is right when he said this, that when we get to the point where the teachings of Jesus himself are seen as subver subversive to us, then we are in a crisis. Amen. Okay. I want you to know, I'm done with the more thing. It's not a commercial. Um, I'm a man of hope, capital H hope, not some cliche type hope that makes me cross my fingers and knock on wood before things get better. Not what I'm talking about. I believe that the Holy Spirit inspires me to have hope. I have a deep-seated belief that God is making all things new. Say amen. And I believe that our world is one of those things. I believe that much of what Jesus speaks about in his sermon is the way that God is going to do so. We all wish he would just wage or wave his magic wand, which God doesn't have one, for the record. That he's someone just snap his fingers and he'd do something. You know what he's going to do? He's going to save the likes of people like you and me. And he's going to put us into the earth and cause us to create change around us. This is how God shapes and changes the earth. You're a part of it. Welcome to the club. And there's no cover. It's the best part, <laughs> right? You just get to come. It's possible that the part, part of the reasons that believers don't act differently than the world around them is because they don't know they're supposed to. 
This is true. Maybe ignorance is not so bliss when it comes to the ethics of God's kingdom. Maybe we should know. So we have some learning to do. <laughs> we have to study and gain biblical literacy, yes. And then at least we know what Jesus asks of us. But we also must people who, quote unquote, do the things that God asks us to do. And when we don't, we need corrected Parents bring correction to their children as a way of making sure they mature with the right morals and standards. And the same is true for the believer in Christ. Hear me. We do not get to say that the words of Christ Jesus no longer matter in our world. We cannot say that they seem too weak or inapplicable for our modern culture wars against our enemies. I've prayed I've prayed this whole week, I prayed this morning in the prayer room that God would bring correction to his church. Let us all be reminded of what Jesus also said in Matthew's gospel. Jesus calls us to be salt and light of the earth. And uh, Matthew 5, verse 16, he says this, and in the same way, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to who? To the Father who is in heaven. You see, God receives glory from us when, he, we, when we act like a light to the earth. It, it causes us to, to have difficulties. I know what it's like to stop doing the things that all your friends used to do, and then you become a Christian, and now you're... Pfft, you're not fun anymore. You're what, I mean, I understand what it's like to be the Christian guy at work who brings your Bible with you to lunch. Like, understand all of those things. And as, as much as we want to call that persecution, it's not. It's just uncomfortableness for you. But know this. When we do things like that, when we show people what it's like to follow Christ, when we show the glory, we show people who Jesus is and how it changes our lives, it says the Father receives glory from it. And we'll stand here and we'll sing. Guys, I'm in the back of the room, again, with earplugs in, just shouting, God is worthy of praise, worthy, great worship this morning, loving it, loving it. And yet when it comes time to do the things that actually give him glory, I put on the handbrake. Can't I just sing us? No. Can't I just sing another song to you, Lord? Why do you want me to do this? Why do I have to be nice? Why do I have to forgive people? Why do I have to look at ungrateful people and be kind and compassionate to them? Because honestly, they're part of the problem, Lord. You understand this, yeah? And, she, and he might be like, yeah, he probably is part of the problem. And God has a solution. You don't want to know what it is? Look in the mirror. It's us. It's the Holy Spirit given by Christ himself into us that we might be salt and light in the earth to shape it and to change it. Anyways, I think I'm done. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I, whatever. Well, let me do one other thing here. I want to leave you with a parable. Can I leave you with a parable? It's about a teacher and his students. teacher's name is Mr. Jeffers. Coincidence? 
Mr. Jeffers is a <laughs> Christian ethics teacher in a parochial high school. Just think like uh, St. Teresa. Um, every semester, this teacher, Mr. Jeffers, takes some time to teach his students the ethics of Jesus' sermon on the plane, this portion of Luke chapter six that we've been working through the last few weeks. And during this classroom discussion, it usually sparks some type of discussion with the students um, asking, well, Mr. Jeffers, is this just supposed to be a manual like, or an instruction manual for, for Christian faith? And the teacher would reply, yeah, kind of, it's kind of like that. And the, t- and the students would respond, well, where's the sermon on, or the special, sorry, where's the section on doctrine? Isn't that important too? It is. I think doctrine is important. Say amen. Yes. Yes. And so he says, yes, this does look just like a list of rules. And so Mr. Jeffers would agree to a point. It is a set of rules, as you say. It's, a, it's rules for the right way of living. It, and it appears as though Jesus cares about how we live our lives. This is what he says. But then Mr. Jeffers asked his students the, the best way to learn to play a musical instrument. He asked them, should you master music theory or the history of your instrument before you start to play it? And the students shouted, no, because then you would never start to play. You would spend all of your time studying and not playing. And besides, that's not the point of music, they say. The point is to play. And Mr. Jeffers said, well, perhaps Christianity is more like a musical instrument and less like math. Hallelujah. Christianity is lived rather than known. It's a way of being as much as it is a way of believing. So I'll close with this. Couple questions for you. I'm not scared of you. I want you to consider how you might answer them. The band's gonna come back in a moment. We're gonna sing a song. It's gonna be great. You get some time to reflect. You also get some time to dip out of here. It's up to you. Let me ask you this. How can we hope for a better world outside the church when inside the church looks no different? You could almost read any metric available about people, divorce rate, rates of abortion, strife, turmoil within the family, and you lay those across people in the church and outside the church, and they almost look identical. How can we hope for a better world outside the church when inside the church works, looks no different? Let me ask you this. Has secularism somehow infiltrated the church? So many people would say, of course. And I wonder if, it's, if that's not what this sermon's about. That the secular world says it's okay to, eat, to repay evil for evil and to treat poorly those who persecute you. But Jesus says something different. There's so much division within the church. Again, it almost looks no different. I mentioned uh, 2024, the election coming up, um, and it's gonna be a problem. Like, if, can I be real, real with you for a moment? Like, I just, just as soon quit than pastor a church in an election year again. And I, I don't mean that like, cause you're not kind people. I mean, some of you aren't, but some of you, <laughs> I mean, honestly, you, 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 you have no idea how hard that was. <laughs> I, I just assume quit. I, I don't think God has a problem with us having different opinions. 
okay? Even politically, I don't know, whatever. The Apostle Paul writes that we have freedom in our lives as we are led by the Holy Spirit. And so if the Bible doesn't specifically command us to do something or disallow us from doing something, then do your research, pray about it, form your own opinion and live your life. Heck, I don't even care if you wanna argue about it, I'm fine. But you do not get to choose to be unloving. You do not get to choose to push aside the commands of Christ and somehow think that this, this is what's required for this time now. That those words used to work, but they don't anymore. Now we have to take back what we've lost and we're going to do so by force. And we use militaristic language to do so. And we treat people just like enemies. And you take the words of Christ and you put them under your shoe and you walk on them. We do not get to choose to be unloving. We do not get to push aside his commands. And to do so would be to rub away the unique mark of a believer. The mark of humility and of meekness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness. Let us remember that the kingdom of God is countercultural. It is upside down to the world around us. Your actions, whether in words or deeds, they matter to God. They do. Abraham Kuyper famously said these words, and this is my end, that there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It belongs to him. Give it to him. I wanna pray for us. I'm gonna ask you to stand. If I could keep the lights up a little so I could see some faces. Just wanna make sure who's scowling at me. When I get the anonymous email, I'll probably know who it came from. All right, let's be weird, church. Ready to be weird? Okay, let's just hold out our hands and ask God to, to bless us. If this is weird for you, I get it. You don't have to, you don't have to, but you may. Hold out your hands and let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we gathered here today, having heard the word, the words rather of your son's sermon, we are humbled and challenged by the call of, by the call to love our enemies and to live a life that reflects your character. We recognize that his teaching goes against the norms of this world, but we also understand that it is the heart of your kingdom. And so Lord, we ask you, would you give us strength and guidance as we strive to live out this enemy loving way of life. May your Holy Spirit, may, hold on Mary, don't do the symbols, thank you. May your Holy Spirit empower us to respond to hate with love and to bless those who curse us and to pray for those who mistreat us. Help us to embrace the golden rule, treating others as we want to be treated. Give us the wisdom to engage in conversations and disagreements with grace and humility, remembering that our ultimate goal is to reflect your love to the world. God, may our actions and attitudes bear witness to this and bear witness to your transformative power, showing that we are your sons and your daughters and that we live by the ethics of your kingdom. Lord, we also pray for those who may be struggling with bitterness and anger or hatred in their hearts. God, help them to find healing and restoration. 
Help them to find that through your love and your forgiveness. Give them the strength to choose the path of reconciliation and mercy. May they follow the example of your son. And as we leave this place, may the teachings of Jesus resonate in our hearts and guide our actions through our lives. May we be instruments of your peace, agents of your love, and bearers of your light in a world that often lacks these qualities. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who taught us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, we pray. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to support you and have you be a part of our community. So please, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. There you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, and even contribute to the growth of the church through online giving. Or you can come see us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. We can't wait to see you.